Health Matters is brought to you by Health Promotion Board. Visit go.gov.sg forward slash spot the warning signs now for more information. Now, Health Matters with Daniel Martin. Hi, everybody. I'm Daniel Martin, and I'm starting off a brand new series on Health Matters for three weeks. You and I are going to hear from mental health professionals, from people who work with our youths to learn more about how we could pick up early signs of the pressure getting to our kids or just life getting to our kids to the point that it could even manifest in something like self-harm. Now, I know this is a scary thought for many of you listening in. You wouldn't even want to, you don't even think it's possible to, to happen to your child. And that is part of the problem as well. If you, if you have this notion that perhaps, oh, it would never happen to my child. There's a way in terms of recognizing early signs. There's also a way in terms of communicating with our young ones, this next generation as well. If you adopt that, that, that disciplinarian parent approach, which I understand is the natural response and is coming from a place of love and maybe a knee-jerk fearful reaction of yours as well, could it hamper efforts to try and re- find a solution and find the right kind of help? Let's get some insight into understanding this condition and this scenario as I speak to Julian Lee, who's a senior clinical psychologist based at the Institute of Mental Health. Julian, welcome to the show. Hi there. Hi there, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. So like I said, many of my listeners who are parents might think to themselves, no, this could never happen to my child. This is something that maybe I read about or I hear about elsewhere, but not in my home. It can't possibly but there is this notion of teens engaging in self-harm. And I think for people who've never been experienced it by knowing someone who's done it or, or having a family member who's had it, the concept seems completely alien altogether. What is this notion and concept of self-harm and why is there evidence that, yes, that teens, some teens, do engage in self-harm? Okay. So the idea that is that in the simplest form, self-harm essentially refers to this act of inflicting some kind of harm upon oneself um, physically. Um, and there's actually many different types of self-harm. There is accidental self-harm, deliberate self-harm, um, suicidal self-harm. But for today's talk, I'm just going to focus more on the key one, which is deliberate self-harm. So that really refers to self-harming on purpose. And it can often manifest in like very obvious forms like hitting oneself, um, cutting yourself with sharp objects, or even overdosing on medications, or various drugs, and things like that. So essentially, it really means that we are putting ourselves in harm's way. You know, and sometimes we can also do that by engaging in like, risky behaviours, um, drinking excessively, and things like that. Um, the subtle forms as well, such as you know, starving ourselves, restricting how much we can eat. And so this is, a, is, this is an area of concern because, you know, the act of self-harming is actually increasing significantly in today's youth. So a lot of them are starting to pick it up at a very young age. Um, most of whom I heard, you know, engage in some form of self-harm since primary school, with cutting being the most common one. And as to why do they engage in self-harm? So this is one of the biggest questions, you know, that we often get from parents and caregivers and Ultimately, self-harm is really a form of coping. For a lot of youths, self-harm is a means of helping them to cope with overwhelming feelings such as sadness, frustration, and anger. 
And a lot of the times, you know, these are feelings that we deem as negative, you know, and that shouldn't be felt or shown. So it's a lot, it's very similar to how someone might go like drinking, you know, after a breakup to, to try and deal with those feelings that are resulting from the breakup. It's like, I don't want to be sad anymore. And I want a quick solution so that I don't feel so terrible. And sometimes, you know, I'll use maybe ashamed of admitting to people that they have problems mm. or they feel like no one really understand them. So they end up resorting to self-harm, which is something that can be done more intimately or, you know, secretly. So and in this- spite of the pain or in spite of the unfamiliarity at such activity and trying it for the first time, in spite of that, it does, it, 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 it generates what, uh, uh, um, some kind of relief for the individual? Or even though it's a negative behavior, the person is fine doing it? Yeah, so very often that's where, when they experience, they experience a lot of this emotional distress, they find that I need to get away from it. I need something mm. else. And so even though it may feel painful, but that's where sometimes you may hear people say, oh no, this pain is like, it's addictive. Mm. You know, it's something you like, oh, it helps me to feel better. And sometimes I even like to see, you know, the blood, you know, and from the cuts and things like that. And it helps them to take away from all of the emotional distress that they experience. See, I think that's why it was so alien for a lot of parents, but people might be unfamiliar with it. It's so interesting to hear you explain the psychology of it in that way as well. So if that is the case, I mean, the, I mean, my gosh, just so worryingly to hear that even it could happen from a primary school level as well. And mm. it might be happening in a scenario where a parent might be oblivious to it happening mm. as well. Are there signs that you can advise us on, Julian? Okay, so the obvious signs would be like you just see, you just start seeing scars, uh, bruises on various parts of the body, you know, and and what I'm hearing from, from youth these days is that they tend to try and cut themselves or hurt themselves in areas which are less obvious. So they may do it on like, for example, their upper arms or their thighs, you know, which are often covered by clothing. So you, you can't really see it. Um, so, so in the sense that those are the obvious signs, you know, or if there's other changes, for example, if you see, if parents notice that their kids are like, oh, why are they suddenly wearing jackets? You know, why are they suddenly wearing long sleeves, you know? Um, even though the weather is so hot, you know, like in Singapore. So those are the kind of things that we should look out for. In a sense, what I also what I also say that is that for parents, right, I think in a way, trust your feelings. If you get the sense that, hey, something is off, you know, my child is behaving or acting differently. They seem to be more quiet or isolated. You know, those are probably some signs that you may want to watch out for as well and keep a close eye on that. And I worry about whether, could this exacerbate or could this be a slippery slope towards more harmful behavior? I know many a parent wonders and fears whether if self-harm is happening, whether or not my child may be at a greater risk of something like suicide. Yeah, so... I mean, based on research, yes, self-harm is one of the key indicators in, in predicting a higher risk of suicide. But there's a lot of other risk factors involved as well. So, for example, if um, a person doesn't have much social support, like I don't have many friends, there's no one whom I can turn to, you know. Or in on the flip side, if you do have peers, but they may also be engaging in self-harm or injurious behavior, um, that can also contribute to that. So... 
other social stressors as well, such as bullying, uh, breakups, um, those can contribute as well. Um, and very often, we also would talk about whether our youth experience what we call adverse childhood events. You know, and that can be things like traumatic events, such as um, abuse or even neglect by caregivers. So those are, those are quite a number of the other factors that we have to look out for that can also contribute to a higher risk of suicide. At the end of the day, I would say that, you know, it really depends on how well we all know the youth, how well do, we, how do, how well do parents know the child. You know, and for me, I think I'm usually most worried as well about like accidental death, mm. suicide, you know, like sometimes you may have kids who are contemplating, but um, they might happen to just accidentally um, end their lives. So, one other thing is that risk, um, so in the sense, suicide risk is something that is also dynamic and it changes all the time. Because of the nature of the behaviour of self-harm. That's right. And so on top of self-harm, it's more of like, you never know what's going to happen. You know, if like, if today they may be fine, but if tomorrow something happens, like a breakup, and then that's going to, that may be a trigger for, you know, killing themselves or hurting themselves, you know. Actually, on a side note, in the next segment, we're going to be talking more about what parents should do, how you can act, how you can speak to your teen or your child about this as well. But just as a quick side note, I'm curious, have you heard from your patients as well? I'm sure many of my listeners are wondering where a young person would mm-hmm. actually learn this behaviour. Because again, it just seems so out of our um, realm of experiences. Mm. So I think one of the key things that's happening today is um, there's a lot more exposure to social media. Mm. So we have like TikTok, um, Instagram, and that's where that you have a lot of people posting about their um, struggles with mental health. Um, and I do even have patients who have also shared that um, there are some groups actually on various um, communication platforms that uh, come together to talk about things like, oh, how cutting, how you do do it. Um, things like that. So it is something that is we are worried about at this moment in time and it's not something that can be easily regulated as well. Julian, let's say we've picked up on some of these signs that you've just described and mentioned. What should parents do if they discover that, yes, my child is engaging in self-harm? I'd love your advice because mm-hmm. I do fear that, speaking of fear, too many parents might have that knee-jerk reaction because they're fearful, because they're scared, and then they become very strict and very harsh and they adopt the disciplinarian approach. And this might, this might backfire sometimes. Yeah, and you're right about that. So actually, that really is my first suggestion. You know, the first suggestion, the hardest part, you know, is that, is that if you find out about self-harm or your child saying that, you know, I'm, I don't feel like living, the first thing you need to do is to take a step back, you know, take deep breaths and pause. Don't react. I also have heard a lot of parents say that, you know, share that when they hear their child saying such things, they get very frustrated, angry and upset, and they might end up showing these frustrations towards a child. So I think as a parent myself, I can understand where they're coming from, but ultimately we'll have to learn to contain these feelings first and not react to them. So for the next part, what do we do next? And what I'd like to do is refer to a joke, you know, that Singaporeans love to complain. And that joke actually reflects on how all of us want to just be heard and understood. You know, and as we are sharing, 
you know, we don't like it when people keep interrupting us or tell us, oh, it's normal, just deal with it, uh, it's a small problem. And the idea is that youths want to be heard. They want us to know, they want us to know that we understand where they're coming from. So when they actually do share with us that they are engaging in self-harm, do remember that they are taking a risk, you know, in coming to, to us, you know. Sometimes they may, they may be afraid that, how are my parents going to react? They might be afraid that parents will react negatively, scold them or blame them. And so the first thing we just have to do is listen. We really just have to listen with them. And remember that we are dealing with scared children, you know, and they also have all these feelings of guilt and shame in them. At the same time, what you might want to do is to also acknowledge their courage in coming up to you and keep the focus on them and their feelings. So the next thing is really connect with the feelings first. Be open-minded, be curious, and don't judge or make any assumptions. You know, it's really about helping them to reflect and see, oh, you know, how they feel. You know, it sounds like you're actually feeling very upset. And then help them, ask them to help you to understand why they are self-harming. So that pretty much is the first stage about really listening, identifying how they are feeling, and then telling them to help you understand. So we don't problem solve at stage. That comes much later. <laughs> yeah, and it's about how we can help them to just contain and hold all of the distressing feelings that they may have at the beginning. Because that's another thing that a parent might do, right? They might want to stop it and solve the problem right there and then in that first discussion. That's right. That's right. I think that's pretty much um, how what I do hear from a lot of uh, my parents are sort of like, oh, what can we do something about it? Yeah, but like, like I say, so for us, it's always about, okay, we need to have all these feelings attended to first. Only once we feel like we are heard, when we are understood, then we are ready to move on to thinking about how we can actually deal with the situation. And that is where then, you know, um, parents may come in to ask, how can I help? And sometimes these youths may also not have an answer. You know, they may say, I don't know. Um, and so that's where we can say that, okay, we may not have all the answers, but, you know, we'll be there to journey with them and support them. At the very same time, we do also have youths who may be reluctant to open up at all. So in these moments, you know, we, we shouldn't try to force them to talk when they're not ready. But just let them know that, you know, that you will always be there for them when they feel like they want to talk to someone. Have you? encountered scenarios like that where if a parent is able to successfully do that that they find that their child their teen does want to open up and tell them I think the truth is that a lot of teens actually want to they actually crave that kind of connection and closeness and understanding but like I say it's all, there's always a lot of fear there's always a lot of fear about how parents would react and I mean that so I think youths these days, they do share about their stories and a lot of them do share about their stories of like how their parents react. And that's why um, they themselves sometimes are also very afraid of opening up. They, so they would rather open up to their friends or maybe not, maybe not even open up at all. Julian, what do we need to understand about the process of treatment and management then that would follow up after that initial period of broaching the subject, opening up to each other, reaching that common ground and understanding. What is treatment going to resemble and how long could it take? Okay, so in the sense that 
Um, to answer that question, I must. You know, I think I would like to talk a bit about what's going to happen first, in the sense that um, we need to talk about how you're going to access all these treatment options. Yeah. And essentially, in Singapore, um, I'll basically say that it's it's a tiered system. So, firstly, first and foremost, we do have the community systems, the community supports in place. So, for example, there's the REACH teams, R-E-A-C-H. These teams go to the various schools in Singapore um, to help conduct assessments and provide interventions. Um, then you have school counsellors, family service centres, um, or we have, like, for example, the youth integrated team services. So, there's a lot of places that are available in the community to, to perform, you know, these kind of assessments. Um, and then from there, you know, once, uh, in the sense that professionals will come in to assess, okay, how... How severe is the condition or how severe are your difficulties? And from there, they can then make the um, appropriate referrals that say, oh, do you need to be seen in a hospital? Or can we help to manage you at a community level? So in a sense, then at a hospital level, for example, we may have some specialized teams um, that uh, work with various populations. For example, I'm under the mood and anxiety clinic. And then there's also like the... OCD, obsessive and compulsive disorders teams and things like that. Yeah. It could be a process as well. Like you said, there are these tiered systems, tiered approaches. It might be a combination approach that may be working. Uh, There's no one fixed path of doing it. And just going back to another point that we raised earlier on, a parent might be wanting some kind of overnight solution, but this is going to be a process, isn't it? Just like dealing with any other health issue, you can't just take a pill and solve it. Yeah, that's right. So it's a process that would take a while, like, like in the sense that for, for youth to actually come in, for example, for therapy, you know, it's a, it's a process that takes a period of time where we need to really figure out, okay, what's going on with them? We need to build the trust with them. I think that's something that's very important in this process as well. And then from there, really journeying with them to help them work through some of these issues and helping them to find um, other healthier coping methods. I think the idea is that for, for a lot of children, you know, um, sometimes you, we may have that kind of expectations that, you know, children should be able to, for youth, they should be able to think about, you know, oh, what's the right thing to do and things like that. But very often we don't actually learn these kind of things until, and, and it's only really through our life experiences um, that we pick up on like, okay, how am I going to handle this situation? How am I going to handle these feelings that I have? And it's something that you then mature as you go. I mean, something that matures over time, especially when you become an adult. So that's where, in a sense, we have to manage our expectations for these youths. And that's where um, having these professionals come in, you know, to provide the kind of guidance and provide the kind of modeling of all these various um, healthier coping methods is a process that's going to take time. These youths are going to need to like, take what they learn in the session, just like what you learn in a classroom in school, you know, bring it out into the real world you know, have your real life experiences and figure and then try to apply some of the things that you have learned in the sessions in the outside world. I want to remind my Health Matters listeners that we all need to take any mention of suicide seriously and remember that help is available. You can always reach out to the Samaritans of Singapore via the 24-hour hotline at 1767 or you can WhatsApp via the 24-hour care text hotline that's 9151. 1767. And if your teen is in immediate danger, you can call 995 or 999. 
I'm Daniel Martin. I want to thank once again my guest, Julian Lee, Senior Clinical Psychologist from IMH. Health Matters is brought to you by Health Promotion Board. Visit go.gov.sg forward slash spot the warning signs now for more information. Before making any decisions based on the information in our program, please consult a medical professional.